It's not funny having a piano fall on your head if someone's just drawn it. It's... I just get pictures of actual boots. You'd never silence poor choir. People that really gone on psychedelic repeat. Yeah. You're one of those people who's so crack. They probably made Nick Fleetwood and Samantha Fox seem like the hitman and her. Salvador Dali's Scalextric set. Hello, I'm Tim Worthington, and welcome to another collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about six things that they remember that no one else ever seems to. One thing that I remember that no one else ever seems to is a late 70s animated revival of The Little Rascals. Yes, those kids from those black and white comedy shorts. I didn't really like it very much, but then later I saw some original Little Rascals shorts and I liked them even less. But unfortunately, this seems to have been quite a common phenomenon in the 70s, as journalist Martin Bielan was only too, well, I won't say happy, to elaborate on. When I was growing up, we used to have inflicted on us a Laurel and Hardy cartoon on children's TV in the afternoon, at an age where I think nobody would have known who Laurel and Hardy were. And it's as I think about it now, it kind of breaks my head because I'm a bit like, so we wouldn't have known who Laurel and Hardy were. I assume it was made after they died. And then surely the whole point of something like Laurel and Hardy is that that's humans doing slapstick in real life. Whereas if you've got animations, you can do whatever you want anyway, which is why it's usually Tom and Jerry and the, you know, Roadrunner um, tricking Wiley Coyote into a tunnel and those sort of things. I kind of just don't really understand how a Laurel and Hardy cartoon was ever a thing. Well, I did look into it. I found out it's from 1966, made by Hanna-Barbera. But it was actually because a guy called Larry Harmon, who was... TV's Bozo the Clown, apparently. No, means nothing to us over here. <laughs> but after Stan Laurel died, he bought the rights of their faces. I am not joking. He contacted their families, <laughs> bought the rights of their faces, and went to Hanna-Barbera and said, let's do a cartoon. Now, as you said, taking them out of reality and into cartoons, that was my big problem with it, because in the opening titles, I'm sure you remember, it split into four boxes, where it had them doing various, I say standard Laurel Hardy antics, it was like being chased by a crocodile, and I think they were in a chariot race in one of them, but one of them had Ollie flapping his arms and flying, and Stan chasing after him, and yeah, that happened every every time you saw Laurel Hardy, didn't it? <laughs> it's just, um, I mean, like I remember the animated Star Trek, and that kind of made sense in a way, because you could do it on, you know, you could then do space on a, budget and you've got the original voice cast and and didn't with that they actually had an alien as one of the people on the bridge didn't they on on the enterprise and so that makes more sense because it was always like a sci-fi fantasy thing but i i don't know i just like if you're doing slapstick cartoon why pretend to be real people it just doesn't (laughs) it's not funny having a piano fall on your head if someone's just drawn it it's like if you've managed to pull that off in real life that's that's funny i think it would actually be quite horrific if it happened (laughs) but it wasn't the only cartoon like that actually because again it's only me that remembers this but in the i assume it was late 70s there was another again Hanna-Barbera cartoon called the robonic stooges so post six million dollar man post bionic woman they had curly larry and moe in the opening titles on the conveyor belt being operated on by this kind of biotronics machine and they had extendable limbs and x-ray vision and so on and it was the Three Stooges having superhero adventures with bionic parts. The most ambitious crossover event of all time. Well, at that age, I didn't know it was a crossover. I didn't <laughs> know that they were, you know, from cinematic history. I was really quite surprised when I first saw a Three Stooges short. 
and thought, why isn't Moe's arm going really <laughs> long to rescue a child from a burning building? It's funny. It's funny those things that kind of like borrow from traditions that you're not going to be aware of as a child. And we saw something I was watching. I know there was an old clip of the Muppets or we were showing like my kids some clips of the Muppets on YouTube. And, and I said to my wife something like, oh, I'd kind of never clocked how much the original Muppet show was like in the history, you know, steeped in the tradition of vaudeville and had a lot of kind of Jewish comedy in it. And my wife just looked at me and went, Martin, you were six. Which is probably fair enough. But when writer Jenny Morrill joined us, she wanted to talk about something that was aimed at slightly older children and which she was very definitely looking for hidden subtexts in. This is Just 17 Yearbooks, which is, it's again early to mid-90s. I suspect the one I remember the most is going to be 1995. They were basically a Just 17 annual, and I can't remember if I legitimately owned them, or if I just used to steal my sister's copies, which, you know, would make sense, because I would have been like a, a snotty 11-year-old, and they were proper teenagers. Although, I don't know if you actually got 17-year-olds reading just 17, because they'd probably be reading sort of The Times and going to the pub by the time they're 17. I don't think they want to read about sort of gorge rad hunks. Can I just ask, were any super hunks rated in it? Because that was always my favourite thing, like my sister's like magazines and poster mags. There would be a rating of super hunks from bands, <laughs> and one always beat the other by one point. This was literally every teenage girl's magazine <laughs> on every page of every issue. But, I mean, th- this one I remember most, and it, it kills me because I can never find a copy of it. And again, it's it's me googling it wrong because whenever I try to Google it, I come up with you know just seventeen released um, a couple of novels. No. Yeah, sometimes they'd be like free stuck to the cover, or sometimes you could just buy them. They're all called things like you know Punk Hotel or, <laughs> or The Crush, <laughs> and there's there's normally a scene in there where you know. She has to sit next to uh, Corey on the school bus and they have an awkward conversation. That's basically the plot of those books. Anyway, those books always come up so I can never find the yearbooks because they were called a yearbook and not an annual, which was really annoying. Anyway, this one had an ongoing series, sort of, I don't know, every 20 pages or so, how to look like various celebrities. And the weird one I remember was uh, Justine Freshman from Elastica. There was a double-page spread on how to look like Justine Freshman, and I wanted this because she was going out with Damon Albarn at the time, who, who I was very much in love with. So I was like, brilliant. In my head, it was brilliant. I'll do this. I'll make myself look like Justine Frischman. And then somehow I can fool Damon Elborn and he will go out with me, even though I'm 11 and a bit fat. Honestly, the tips were, were things like dye your hair black and you know, colour your eyebrows in Enviro and, and <laughs> you know, be an elastic. It was just things like that. He didn't say how to actually look like them, which is kind of probably get plastic surgery. But it was really, really good. And I would love to see a copy of that, just to see if it was as odd as I remember. If I ever did get a copy of that, I would probably make a blog post out of attempting to look like it. Well, I'm quite surprised, really, that they did have How to Look Like Justine Frischman. I mean, I know she was incredibly famous and popular at the time, but you know, I was a huge Elastica fan, but I was at university at that point. I got in trouble for writing in the review in the university magazine, not especially proud of this now, even if it is quite funny, but I said all of Elastica looked like it had been dragged through a particularly thick fence backwards after wearing the same clothes in bed for a week. 
So they did. They were kind of glamorous, scruffy, I would say. And then it later turned out they were all taking enormous amounts of drugs at the time. So I'm sure they didn't mention that in the How to Look Like Them guide. Not to the best of my knowledge, no. But I mean, whenever I went out around that time, which was every night practically, there were loads of kind of Justine Frischman girls everywhere, but they all looked, they dressed differently. They had the hair they had the eyebrows, they had the look going on, they dressed completely differently, which is really weird. They'd obviously not read the yearbook. It was strange because, I mean, I, I was obsessed with wanting to be Justine Frischman for a while, and I used to dress exactly like her. I actually got into trouble at school a few times because, you know, I was in, like, year six in a, in a Catholic primary school, and I was supposed to be wearing, like, a kilt and a school jumper, and I was like, no, I'm coming in wearing Doc Martens, you can't stop me. I, I got into trouble with Mr. Patterson quite a lot for that. What else? We, we, there was how to what colours you should wear for your like hair colour or your skin colour. And there was a thing, basically a whole page, just saying, like, gingers should wear green all the time. Don't look at gingers. Don't they look lovely in green? But I remember Smash Hits had yearbooks as well. And what I really loved about them was, I mean, Smash Hits was, like, wild enough just in its twice-weekly regular issues. But because I had all these pages to fill, they would go utterly over the top with boredom. I remember there was a, there was a comic strip about bubbles escaping from Michael Jackson by flying off on one of the llamas. <laughs> and seeking fame and fortune in his own right. And then he lost all this money and he went back to Michael Jackson, who, as if they could get away with this now, he said, you're too late, you ingrate. I've given your room to the remains of the elephant man. <laughs> And the other great thing, remember, there's a hobbies page where one of them was turn your TV into an aquarium. We had, it was a step-by-step guide, and it was, you know, like a hollow out all the electrics, you know, fill it with salt water, put it. It went on and on, and then it started saying, "Do not do this. Seriously, don't do this. We're not legally responsible. You are dead." And when you think it was mainly kids reading it, and it was incredibly anarchic because nobody was actually looking what they were doing in the yearbooks. It was a weird divide between just 17 annuals and rainbow annuals. <laughs> I'm 34 and I still have all the rainbow annuals and actually most issues of the comic. Now, any regular listener is going to know what question I'm going to ask now. Did Bungle, Zippy and George have adventures in it independent of everyone else? No. The standard of adventure, the example plot is Jeffrey has lost his pencil. Where's his pencil? Of them. They are honestly, those Photoshop comics though, they write themselves. I once had an email from um, the guy who was the editor of Rainbow Comic, a guy called Mike Butcher, and he's like, oh, I, I, saw, you, I saw your comics. We used to take the piss out of each other in the office, like, pretend to be doing stuff like that. So, as far as I'm concerned, my stuff's canon now. Did they ever feature the sort of extraneous characters? I mean, not just Rod Jane and Freddie, who I'm sure appeared in it, but did they ever have, I can't remember his name, Zippy's rapping cousin? Or did they have Jeffrey's auntie, who was made unemployed by the biscuit factory? As far as I know, they never had auntie in it. Probably had Zippo. They had the Dawn quite a lot as well. But, and this is exciting... They introduced new characters just for the comic. New characters, like, we're going to see my friend Andrew. So they go and see Andrew, and then Andrew is never heard of again. Was Andrew a human? Yeah, they don't know anyone who isn't human. It's just them and the humans. And if you look up Rainbow on popular, lazy, uncritical nostalgia website TV Cream, you'll find an entry saying, Mediocre student teacher industry. I wonder who wrote that. All I'll say is it possibly wasn't TV Cream's Jack Kibblewhite who joined us to talk about a particular topical song he remembered. Don't 
Give Up Your Day Job by Richard Digence. And the reason why I've picked it is because it's one of those songs that you hear once and it's forever stuck in your brain. In part because he just continually sings that same chorus line. And it's nice to hear it again because you can then sort of track back on how much of what you remember is actually evident in the recorded version. So the actual quite complicated line, which is it's the general consensus of the people here today, don't, don't, don't give up your day job. I remember absolutely word perfectly. It's a song that's rattled around in my head and I think it kind of sums up a style of musician and entertainer from a particular bygone period. But it was a track that for a long, long time I tried to rediscover and re-experience. Well, it is quite interesting. that say we all now pretty much just associate Richard Digens with kind of light satirical songs like that. But I'll be reading up on him a bit and it looks as though, you know, he came out with the whole sort of same sort of thing as Billy Connolly, Jasper Carrot, Mike Harding, you know, the kind of folk singers telling jokes as well. But it looks like he was a lot more serious about his comedy at first. And he actually toured America as a comedian in the early 70s. And apparently he supported Steve Martin on the tour, which was really quite surprised because, you know, all I really know him from is all those ITV vehicles with the kind of the comedy names that don't quite make sense when you think about it. Like, I remember there was a dabble with Digence, a drop of Digence, there was Abracadigence. Abracadigence, when you first hear that name yeah, that's a clever name and then you think about it a bit more and it's actually not clever because all it's done is taken the word abracadabra and then found another word that has a d so it's abracadigence now if it was debbie stevenson doing a comedy show and it was abracadabra <laughs> actually that's quite clever but abracadigence is not clever is it well no not at all i mean what it reminds me of is there was a story down on brookside at one point where if you remember pat and terry had oh, yeah. a delivery van at one point they were working for a guy who traded in kind of slot machines called something henty and this firm's called henty tainment and there was a whole episode's worth of them looking at his business card going I don't get it. Do you? Do you get it, Terry? Hentytainment. And then at the end, they went, oh, yeah, Hentytainment. I get it now. Yeah, so it's kind of that level of comedy, really. The other thing that I want to point out about the song is that one of the things that I love about the recording that you've got there is that it has this, and again, I think this is something that's died out. It's got a style of communal singing that you don't hear anymore which I can only really explain by kind of doing an impression of. So what happens is, so obviously what Richard does is he's tutored his audience in the chorus and so he'll then tee them up and then they have to sing the Don't Give Up Your Day Job. But they always sing it like this, which is, Don't, don't, don't give up your day job. There's a kind of falsetto from the older women that is the predominant timbre that comes out of that performance that you just don't hear anymore. If, if you get people to communally sing now, they don't sing, Don't, don't, don't give up your day job. I think it's like posh singing back in the day. Well, I think it is still around, but it's just sort of evolved slightly because, I mean, a couple of days ago, I went to see Grace Petrie, the kind of half protest, half folk, if you can have a third oh, yeah. half, half comedy singer. She has a song called No Such Thing as a Protest Singer, which is all about how things like The Guardian and Radio 4 are always running features on how come there's no protest singers anymore and they never mention her. But it all builds up to, you know, she does these incredibly funny verses and then the audience supposed to come in at the last line of the chorus and sing no such thing as a protest singer did they sing there's no such thing as a protest singer well actually it would have been better if they had because it was sort of a kind of mumble response really like no such thing as a protest singer and she was actually shouting from the stage you know encouraging people to join in a bit more but I think it's politeness I think it's like church singing it's that you can be enthusiastic but not too enthusiastic it's just all very subdued that's it yeah you're quite right I think it is a church going for Uh, Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Now, I don't remember on what programme I saw that before. And I 
pretty sure I only actually saw it once. So I don't know if it would have been an abracadigence or when he was guesting on something else. But the other thing I think is quite interesting about that song is I presume it's a, it's kind of a vessel for him because the structure of the song is such that he has the, the basic framework, which is it's the general consensus of the people here today, don't give up your day job, which then allows him to make observations of a socio-political nature uh, related to people who are clearly, in his view, deficient at their day job. So I, I have to presume that the verses have changed over the years because the version that I've heard most recently focuses on things like the Channel Tunnel. Therefore, I, th I think it's intriguing to wonder what he might have done in version one. And indeed, if he's touring it today, I bet he's probably got something about Brexit, don't you think? Well, almost certainly, yeah. I mean, you do have to wonder about how people who are best known for, say, a topical gag or a topical character kind of react to when the rest of the world moves on and they've got this thing they're known for that they still have to do and the reference points aren't relevant but I can point to a couple of years ago well actually it was quite a while ago now I went to see Phil Cool's farewell tour uh -huh. and he, you know, there were a lot of quite contemporary references in it, but there's a bit where he talked about how he worked so hard at keeping up with the rest of the world. There was one impression he didn't even have to do his rubber face antics for anymore. And he took kind of a deep breath and, well, just take a guess. You know, if you think about what Phil Cool looked like in the 80s, then you add, say, 20 years onto it, you work out who he looked like? No. George W. Bush, he looked exactly yeah. the same as him. It was a yes. brilliant impression, and he didn't have to do any of his usual face-bending antics. It was just there. As a special treat, audible quote marks, for the 25th edition of Looks Unfamiliar, the guest wasn't Phil Cool doing an impression of me, but actually me, interviewed by Stephen O'Brien, and I wanted to talk about a book that I didn't really exactly have fond memories of. Secrets from the School Underground. It's one of those books that I remember. Books would come out where they would just run through the playground like a virus. You know, everyone would say, have you read X and Y? There were quite a few, remember, the things like Teenage Health Freak, a couple of things like Weirdly the World According to Smith and Jones, which is their <laughs> flop ITV series. Remember the book of that being sort of playground contraband for a while, the spitting image book, of course. But this was one, because there were quite a few paperbacks. There was one that used to come around every couple of years called Go Ask Alice, where it's purportedly the diary of a real-life drug addict. And apparently, so my friends with teenage kids are telling me they're finding it on their bookshelves <laughs> now that never goes away but this completely went away this was i think it was from 1988 it was written by pete johnson who's since gone on to he's had a really successful career writing teen thrillers and horrors but this was completely unlike all of this. It was supposedly the diary of a schoolboy called... I can't remember his surname, but he was called Greg, but people called him Jugger because his ears were prominent. And it was him basically... It was basically a salacious diary of all the stuff that happened in school. I mean, this all sounds quite nasty. But I remember finding it quite a depressing book at the time. But, you know, you had to read it because I was a teenager writer of passage. But there's something about some graffiti that said Denise is the biggest slag in High Wycombe and they tried to find out who Denise was. There was a boy in school that they bullied called Reuben where they had porn mags in his bag. You know, it's all quite unpleasant stuff, really. There's a chapter where he gets ripped off by some prostitutes when he goes on a sneaky solo visit to London. And there's the, the bit that I hated the most as a youngster, though, you'll see why in a minute. He ends one of his diary entries by saying, and now for something completely different. I've just discovered Monty Python. It's nearly as funny as the weather forecast. Now, this was around the time they were repeating Series 3 of Monty Python on BBC One, so... I was discovering it around then. I was not thinking, lol, this is almost as funny as the weather. Now, the weather forecast isn't funny anyway, particularly when you think of some things that happened in the weather forecast around that time. Absolutely. You know, 
not really a laughing matter, but I was thinking that is really funny the way they switch between the studio and film and argue about it and things like that. I was not thinking you know, <laughs> this. This is well random, you know. That really annoyed me. But the whole book it sort of disappeared into the ether. In fact, I couldn't find the cover that I remember online, which is a kind of 2000 AD strip type drawing of two schoolboys, one of whom is presumably Jugger leaning against a wall and a kind of ah, we're all mates. Do you know what it looked like, actually? The opening credits of Hardwick House when Slasher's gangling against the wall. That hadn't struck me before now. I'm sure yeah. it was copied from that, but I'm still desperate to see the rest of Hardwick House. I'm sure everyone listening knows the story behind that. I am not desperate to read Secrets from the School Underground again. It's a funny one, this, because there were quite a number of sort of school and teenage-based books around the time which were kind of almost pushing new boundaries. Mm. I'd never heard of this one, I must admit, and I was tempted to order it in, in advance of this um, recording <laughs> to read it. I'm I've kind of, saved you one pence on well, Amazon. <laughs> well, you've saved one pence on Amazon. But it does sound fascinating, and I think it was kind of a prelude to some of the books that came later, because I think certainly sort of in the early 2000s, there were a number of books... Which were kind of criticising the press for sort of revealing the dark side of being a teenager, and I think this was quite clearly almost ahead of its time, and which is maybe one reason why it didn't maybe didn't take off the way it did, or mm. it's been forgotten, or crucially hasn't been reprinted, perhaps because it was quite controversial and dark in tone. Well, and also, like I say, I found it I found it quite bleak and depressing. I didn't find it that funny, and I found him annoying as a lead character. He wasn't what I wanted to see in a book. I think I've read Three Men in a Boat by that point. I was, I was a bit happier with, you know, sort of toffs arguing about wallpaper, <laughs> riding a coracle down the river than I was with this obnoxious kid. It's that whole thing about, you know, the teenage thing of trying to pretend you've had more experience of the world than you have. But this was as if it had actually happened to him. And I found that quite nauseating because quite often you hear claims of people in school and thought, yeah, you haven't done that, have you? You haven't tried weed. You know, you didn't get drunk in the park with your mates. I can tell just from your face. But this book was like, he tried it all, he'd done it all. That's not something I want to read about. It sounds quite nihilistic in some ways. You're quite sort of, maybe not up there with Fred's mm. for depression. Yeah. But it certainly um, just sound quite bleak. I mean, that's the key word you've used, bleak and... I think sometimes that's mm. quite a difficult thing to engage with, the bleakness mm. because of the utter lack of hope. Well, something that didn't occur to me at all recently was, I think part of the reason it seemed so bleak was the school underground was a wall where everyone wrote graffiti on with all the latest exploits. And it was just after Grange Hill had done the Speaking Wall storyline. That's my era of Grange Hill. And that fired off in a number of directions. It had comic consequences. Sometimes it had, you know, scandalous consequences. Like when Faye Lucas having the third teacher and somebody wrote about it on there. It led to the, the two walled up ghost hoaxes that Gonch did. <laughs> That's how you do it. You reflect all, well, say all human life, all school life in it. Because not everyone, not everyone's experience of school is like a bad episode of Murphy's Mob. Some people have a laugh throughout it, you know. Certainly, I I don't remember finding school that harrowing or bleak or, you know, running into many prostitutes who ripped me off. It's really stayed with me, this, because it was essential. You had to have read it, and then nobody remembers it. Happily, Secrets from the School Underground would never have featured on the show that gave this show its name. ITV's cosy nostalgia fest looks familiar. But who even remembers looks familiar now? 
Well, we got our old friend Ben Baker to watch a couple of episodes and tell us what he thought of them. When it started in 1970, I think I looked up. So it's already 10 years on, so it's dated for a programme about dated things. But the title sequence to the first one I saw was these very lengthy black and white opening clips. This lengthy clips that the audience are in hysterics at. It's very sort of like, I, I assume they changed every week, but were generally to a, to a pattern, which is like ballroom dancing and then men dressed as women falling into some water. <laughs> and then on, That's all your hobbies that and is, interests. That is all my hobbies and interests. And then the second one, it's it, it's got really slick. It's suddenly like the, the titles are pacey. It's got a proper logo. And Dennis is sat like a, a, at a desk. He's the brownest white man. On television, he's <laughs> lovely tan. He, I just think he basically spent three months knocking out. It'll be all right in the night, and this, and then just bugging off somewhere hot for the rest of the well, year. Well, there's also what you didn't say was at the end of that second set of titles. After you know all these authentic archive clips, it comes to a mocked up sepia thing of him <laughs> in a lovely hat, having a fine old smoke of a cigar oh, and yeah. a drink of brandy, <laughs> as if he's been, just been around since the dawn of entertainment. <laughs> Which, to be fair, is not that far. Yeah. Really. <laughs> the interesting thing about the the first episode with Dennis Norden coming from radio, being one of the biggest radio writers of the sort of 40s, early 40s, with Frank Muir and Take It From Here and stuff, is that the first episode is a reunion of the cast of Bandwagon. Which is one of those things, I think, if you ask someone over a certain age, they'll go, oh, I remember Bandwagon. Bandwagon intrigues me, because I, I've heard it. I don't find it that funny. But it's the idea that it started in, what, was it the 30s? And it was the whole premise was that Richard Murdoch and Arthur Askey had been for an audition at the BBC, and everyone forgot about them, and nobody asked them to come down from the roof, because they went on the roof for some reason. <laughs> and they live up there. <laughs> And the whole premise of it was about them wandering around the BBC, basically. Radio had only just started, and people were messing about with it already. Yeah. I think that's quite amazing, really. Yeah, I suppose so. It's a lot. It's it's interesting, but I, I suppose again, like the huge audiences that you'd get for a program like that meant even though it was kind of slightly unusual, people had listened because there was bugger all else to listen to. <laughs> but as you said, there was Arthur Askey and Stinker Murdoch. As uh, you just wouldn't get someone like, you know, these days, would you, with a nickname like Stinker, <laughs> Stinker Elba, <laughs> Stinker Marzan. <laughs> no, Stringer Bell he played in <laughs> the wire, not Stinker Bell. There that... was Stinkum in the wire, it was one of his henchmen. <laughs> Maybe so that's all of you, get, you just get... Stop reminiscing about the wire, it's not old enough. Get back to looks familiar. You're one of those people who sell crack <laughs> on the Baltimore <laughs> streets. And this clip is for you. Sadly, the adventures of Poot, Wallace and Bodie are indeed a bit too well known for us to cover on here. But when John Rain, host of the excellent Smirsh Pod, appeared on the show, he wanted to talk about a very different kind of edgy, dangerous television programme. Hello, Mum. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is around the time of the kind of alternative comedy boom. So you had, you know, the Saturday Night Live, the comic strip, obviously. And you, these are the little outliers from those programmes. Like, the only reason I watched this was because of Arnold Brown. He wasn't in it prominently, but he had these little monologues like Ronnie Corbett, except they had his, he was on a armchair, but it was like six feet in the air or stuck to a wall. 
and I loved him because uh, he was my one of my favourite episodes of The Young Ones is the Flood. And he does that little monologue, you know, about the Scottish Jewish person to stereotypes, the price of one, all that business. And I just found him really funny. I love it. And he, again, used to be on Saturday Night Live, which is something I used to watch every week. Yeah, so I watched it for him. I think I might have known about Nick Wilton from Fast Forward. And that was weird. Having someone from a children's sketch show then being on Hello Mum talking about. And there's a moment from Hello Mum that I'll always remember when Helen Lederer calls him a pea brain. And he goes, oh, right, yeah, so I've got a brain the size of a pea. And she says, no, it means your head's full of piss. And I remember being so shocked that Nick <laughs> Wilton was being insulted and the word piss was used because he was in Fast Forward. But yeah, and this was the, my first encounter with Clive Mantle, who would become important in my life years later because he was the secret nuclear man that I didn't know about until I got older, from Superman 4, obviously. Again, it was just that kind of slice of anarchy that was on TV at the time. And I have subsequently gone back and watched Hello Mum, and yeah, it hasn't stood up at all. But at the time, it was really exciting because it was, like you, I'd not long had a portable telly in my room. So when I went to bed, I didn't really go to bed. I just watched telly until I got tired and went to sleep, which probably explains why I was so terrible at school. But yeah, this just felt kind of exciting. And there was the house band was in it as well. There was like um, Robin Driscoll, who was everywhere back then. And Richard Ranch, if I remember rightly, was in here as well. So it was all the sort of seeds uh, and the outliers from things that were quite big at the time. Well, I think looking back, the reason I probably didn't like it was, as I say, I loved In One Ear. Mm. And I think it goes back to that thing we sort of lost now, where it used to be the case that sometimes you didn't even know what people on the radio looked like. I yeah. mean, I point to, for example, I went to one of the recordings of Lionel Nimrod's Inexplicable World. Oh, yeah. Where none of the cast, especially Armando Yanucci, looked anything like I expected. <laughs> really weird. I imagined it was like a really sort of like tall bruiser, which is on the, on the on the basis of his voice. But the other one was when Joe Brown was on the Mary Weisshouse experience. I'd never seen her at that point. Mm. And I thought the stuff about being, you know, large and ungainly and so on was kind of a, a reverse joke thing. I pictured her as like a diminutive Smiths fan sort of girl. And yeah. I was quite surprised when I saw her. So sometimes it was like that. But I think in one ear, it had that real sense of anarchy on the radio when you were just hearing their voices. Yeah. It genuinely felt like anything could happen, like Radio 4 could literally fall off the air. Mm. And then they're on BBC Two, and they're not very good at the running around being anarchic, really. Yeah. And it kind of shows, although, re-watching it in later years, I've come to appreciate it more, because they did take advantage of the fact that it was live, mm. with things like, they held up signs saying, please notice us, did you see? Mm. <laughs> Which was BBC Two's review show at that time. And then it was given a really bad review by Ian Hislop, who I remember astutely said that it worked really well when they were just writing sketches that were shot through with their attitude, but when they thought we've got to be alternative here, and that was what the sketches were predicated on, it just felt embarrassing. But they then started holding up signs saying, we were on Did You See? And then they reviewed an episode of Did You See on it. <laughs> and the other brilliant thing was because Nick Wilton was in Hardwick House. Yeah. And I've been trying to find this in the episodes online and i can't but the week it was taken off air he made a joke in hello mum about something to do with turning over for hardwick house Uh. and that felt that really that was his act of defiance that was his two fingers of the furore looking back now i think can you imagine anyone being able to do anything like that now but nobody could stop them because it was live but it's not just live broadcast that you can't stop 
As we found out when designer and founder of TV Cream, Phil Norman, appeared on the show to tell us about a particular block of adverts that had always troubled him a bit. This was one of those weird kind of adverts that kind of, like, you only got around Christmas that straddled an entire commercial break. You know, like the, like the Woolworths extravaganzas where they would line up a bunch of celebrities, give them each a product to flog and just like take over an entire break. But this was different because this was it was an advert for butter, but it was also an advert for the adverts for butter. You'd, you'd had for a few years, you'd had that was it? It was the Wurzels, wasn't it? It wasn't the Yetis or something like that. It was the Wurzels doing the soundtrack, basically singing this uh, slightly adapted popular English folk song, flogging country life butter. And you had these four animated kind of homunculi made out of the same stuff, singing about how they love to eat country life butter which is obviously the simultaneously the main constituent of their own bodies <laughs> no you don't think about that too much obviously but then apparently it was in 1979 the uh, the christmas compilation was made but i must have seen it a couple of years later because i seem to associate it with the same christmas that the black hole was shown on itv as the big christmas film in you know sort of um, in the evening they introduced this compilation of their best adverts and they just said for all you mums here's something for you and they show an advert as if it was their gift to you they're gonna <laughs> butter at you again and i was very young at this time and it kind of started a kind of change in my attitude to advertising because before as a very young child i thought adverts were clearly the best thing on tv because they were colorful they were noisy they had music and they fitted my attention span perfectly so you know i'd start sort of tape recording the gaps in the adverts more than the programs themselves but yeah but when I, once i saw this i kind of thought that's a bit much isn't it you know why, why are you s- <laughs> openly celebrating these adverts that we've seen 500 times before anyway in this kind of compilation and i don't know i wasn't i didn't suddenly overnight turn into this kind of anti-capitalist cynic but it was kind of it was just the very first knockings of that's not as brilliant as you say it is but yeah the more you think about the country life that i'm in situation anyway the more horribly it gets apart from the kind of vague cannibalistic overtones you had what would now be seen as extremely off-colour, um, oh, she likes that, don't she? She gets that all the time. <laughs> it's kind of horrible innuendo, which kind of suggested that the buttermen were just going around having their way with these outfits. <laughs> it's some kind of horrible, emulsified kind of cross between last tango in Paris and straw dogs. Gangs <laughs> of four kind of arriving at these houses. It's just, oh, how can I take this one off the list? Well, the thing that alarms me about it, watching it now, is obviously it runs about three minutes or something, but it's the kind of thing where, when you're a kid, that length of time seems to go on forever. Especially yeah. if you're not expecting them to keep coming back with encores and say, Arr, shall we do another one for you? And like, it just it goes stretches on into infinity. You've been sat there thinking, will the Ralph Bashke Lord of the Rings ever come back on? Oh, God, yeah. And, and also, every advert starts with that sort of descending accordion. Not again. I am quite obsessed with the idea of advertising about advertising. It always makes me think of, I've never understood this. Out there, there are examples, genuine examples, of a BBC continuity slide of the BBC School's Diamond. I've always thought, what the hell was that used for? You know, follow shortly, follow shortly. 
<laughs> I don't get that at all, but there is a thing about it. I remember they tried to... Which insurance company was it that had We Want to Be Together? It Prudential or something? Yes, or... it was. Yeah, when they did the second round of them, there were bus stop adverts saying, will they stay together? Tune into ITV at 8pm tonight and find out. We're like, You don't advertise an advert. That's just craziness. I... Surely there was only one advert in the first place, wasn't there? The one, you know, the one where Mark Williams is banging on about all the things he wants, you know, all the the humdrum things he likes. And Joe Unwin's silently going, no, I want a world cruise and stuff like that. Yeah, but it was vitally important you saw this sequel that nobody asked for. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody wants to find out what happened to Clifford the Dragon from the Listerine advert and how his date went. So... (laughs) I know, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, I suppose things like the Gold Blend couple kind of got into popular folklore and then they capitalised on it. But yeah, some of them tried to do it reverse, you know, and kind of reverse engineer a kind of popular thing. You know, everyone's talking about this. It's like, no, they're not. And now here's something you might not have heard. Me on the Zeitgeist Tapes, the programme where politics and pop culture collide, talking to Emma Burnell and Steve Fielding about Doctor Who and how political it may or may not have been at various points of its existence. But Doctor Who's always been a little bit political. I think this second iteration, I mean, I, I don't know about the, you know, the first the first batch, as it were, that ended so sadly with, was it Sylvester McCoy in the end? That first iteration, I'm not, there were bits of politics in it, but I think that was sometimes a question of writers putting things in that they weren't supposed to, or it was done on the side or whatever. But ever since it's been rebooted, hasn't Doctor Who had a very, it's had an ethos hasn't it a kind of left liberal ethos which i'm quite surprised but maybe people have on the right have been banging on about it i just haven't noticed i'm i'm quite surprised that it's really taken the doctor to become a woman for things to kick off at least as far as i've i've noticed it but it's been very hasn't it been really quite biased the ethos and and in some of the particular stories What's fascinating to me is how all these people who are so worried that Doctor Who is becoming too politically correct now seem to have missed all of the gay storylines. Or, yes. or does, they, does that matter less than women? <laughs> I mean, it's just fascinating <laughs> in terms of the hierarchy of offence. Well, I can't throw in from sort of an actual Doctor Who fandom perspective that you know, there is this odd idea that it is hard left and always has been. And that there are, when I say right-wing Doctor Who fans, I don't mean, you know, they're goose-stepping down the street saying, you know, uh, <laughs> all the candy man or whatever, but there are people I know who, you know, I would say are conservative voters, that side of the fence, who they agree with people on my side of the fence, often quite publicly on Twitter, that it's just, it's always been against what's bad. There's never been a definable stance that it's really taken. To me, that's quite an important thing. I mean, all of them, I would say, they didn't have a problem with the female doctor at all. They were like, yeah, bring it on. It's the fringes on both sides that seem to have some weird investment in it. It's been driven possibly on both sides by an ideology that's not there. People pining for a golden age that didn't exist, that never did, and people wanting almost to weaponize it. On the other direction, the people that are saying, you know, it's gone all PC, blah, 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 blah. looking back to something that never really happened. It quantifiably wasn't the case. And they probably say, you know, oh, I used to watch Bod with PC Plod. And you say, no, it's yeah. PC No, I remember. I should know. I used to watch. You know, mm. that- Certainly older people like to have a sense of um, things were more certain in the past and they don't like things 
not being binary. And so when when you do get a Doctor Who who is no longer a man, and when you've got all the the fluid sexualities that have been prefigured, you know, all the way through the, the this this latest second iteration, I think that must make some of them a bit uncomfortable. And particularly when they can remember, you know, it was just old men shouting at assistants in short skirts, and that and that was great, apparently. No, no, I, I mean, I think that there is a a, a misplaced <clears throat> sense of nostalgia amongst the audience, rather. Than, and I think the what um what who knew who sort of you know po- Russell T Davis onwards oh. has done rather mm. well is straddle um the rewards for long-term fans so here are some references to things that only you guys will get and isn't that sweet and lovely so when the doctor eats jelly babies for example there's a moment Mm. in a later who where um one of them's watching the teletubbies which again is a reference back to a time when the doctor was watching the clangers tim you you should recognize this (laughs) um yeah these are like little nuggets little easter eggs that reward fans but they've always straddled that with bringing in a new audience making sure a new audience is reintroduced to the Daleks, to the Cybermen, to, to you know, your various um, historical races that the Doctor has fought and brought on mm. brand new um, and interestingly scary baddies like um, the Weeping Angels is a great example, for example. I think that, that New Who has always straddled that sense of nostalgia with a sense of uh, future possibilities. And I think that the bringing in of the female Doctor, which frankly was inevitable as soon as they made the Master a Woman, for some people has gone too far into the future possibilities. But, you know, Doctor Who is a sci-fi show. It is all about future future possibilities even when he goes into the past what he does is go into the past with a future outlook and the the morality and the ethos of the of the times in which he's living and those times are you know several thousand years ahead of ours this is what the show has always been about politically in terms of its liberal values it's never really had a, a different outlook. It may have reflected the slightly different liberal values of the late 60s and then the 70s and then the 80s, but it's always had that ethos. Has it? I, don't, I, I mean, the thing is, I don't... Re- I mean, I, I, I started watching it when I was a kid and all I can remember is being, being scared of the Daleks, like <laughs> most, most kids do. So I don't really remember anything about the... And this, this may say something about the, the nature of the audience... At the moment, today, that I mean, as a kid, I just remember all the adventures and and the, the Doctor and things happening, but not not a subtext of liberality. Whereas, as an adult, from Christopher Eccleston onwards, I've been very aware of that, and I've been very aware of what of what Doctor Who was doing. Um, sometimes in a very clunky, exaggerated way that made me go a little bit. You know what? Ooh, I mean, I know what you're doing, and but we should done it a bit better. So I just want, you know, obviously, I don't think many of the kids watching it um, today would probably be aware of this liberality. But has it always been liberal in in the sort of left liberal in the way that it is now? It's kind of varied over time, but even if you go back to the very first series, 1963-64, I mean, even sidestepping the fact that the William Hartnell Doctor, there's this weird idea now that he was racist and sexist, and that that isn't borne out by, you know, what's actually on screen at all. But, you know, you've got the two of the companions as Barbara who's a school teacher who I think is supposed to be about 29, 30 and the Susan the Doctor's granddaughter who they dominate a lot of the screen time with conversations that do pass the Bechdel test and it's interesting that in the first real as Emma was just saying the first real forays back into the past there's the one where they meet Marco Polo where Susan has a long conversation with one of Marco Polo's retinue Ping Cho who's on her way to an arranged marriage. And Susan kind of judging it by modern standards and Pincho saying, well, 
don't you understand I'm quite happy with this? I don't understand why you're upset. I'm going to a great life. You know, that, and that's kind of saying, you know, that's how it was then. This is where we are now. Similarly, in the Aztecs, a couple of stories later, Barbara's absolutely horrified by the idea of human sacrifice and tries to stop them doing it and change, change history. And the doctor's sort of, well, you can't do that. That's their culture. And that's how it is. Even from the start, I mean, don't forget, the first ever producer was a young woman, Verity Lambert, who would have been in her mid-twenties at the time, I think. And there have been periods where it wasn't quite as, should we say, wasn't quite as right on all of the time. But overall, I think that's definitely been the case. Well, I hope you enjoyed that collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar. And if you did enjoy it, don't forget you can hear the complete shows at timworthington.org. And if you're feeling generous... Why not help support Looks Unfamiliar by buying one of my books? Again, more details, timworthington.org. See you soon. I'm just going to quote verbatim what he put down for this. Sometime in the 80s, on immediately before the snowman, there was a strange Eastern European, I think, cartoon. It involved a bird that had all the flesh from its wings pulled off and then was forced to live its life as a bat. I had this on video and saw it several times, albeit only the last few minutes of it, which was all that was recorded. I think it had been recorded after a film. I have scoured the TV listings, and there is no reference to any cartoon on Before the Snowman in the 80s, nor does IMDb list anything remotely resembling it, unsurprisingly. No other online mention exists, and I did write a little note to you. Personally, I think this sounds like something written by a serial killer. Can't Help Thinking About Me by Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.